Church, I would like to invite you to open up your Bibles this morning. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there are some paperback Bibles that are near you. I'd love it if you would turn there with us to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Now, Titus is a small little book, just three chapters there, so it may be a little bit difficult to find it. Feel free to turn to the table of contents. I know that helps me sometimes as well. You will want to be there with us as we're going to look at the scripture there. We're actually only going to look at a few words, but I want you to see them there, sitting in the scriptures and see the context that you can look at during the course of our examination of this passage this morning. Now, I truly hope that the last few weeks have been sweet for you, that you have had opportunity over Christmas with family and friends to be filled with celebration and rest. Hope that this last week of New Year's celebration and entry into 2019, that it's begun with hope and joy. And that I I do hope that our five weeks in Advent has served you well as we enter this new year. But out of our Advent sermon series, what we're going to do is we're going to take four weeks to explore a season of grace between the Advents. And that's where we live. We live in the season between the Advents. We live in the age between the first and second coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to begin a four-week series actually in Titus 2, 11 through 14. We'll spend these weeks considering the beginning of that passage, which is the grace of God which has appeared. You'll see that the passage presents uh, sort of two bookends of salvation, We see at the beginning of the passage, the appearing of the grace of God, right? That's the first book end. And then in the second part of the passage, we have the appearing of the glory of God. uh, These two appearings are the bookends of salvation. Both of the appearings are, in reality, the coming of Jesus Christ. It's all about the appearing of the grace, the hope that is in Jesus Christ. The grace of God, which is bringing us salvation, training us for righteousness, and causing us to await his return in hope. So let's look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 together. For The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Lord God, I pray this morning that you would cause your word to work in us, that even these few words, these precious words of grace about our God, about your appearing, and we know that that is about the Christ that you Lord, would work in us, that you would send your spirit to convict us of of much of what we already know. And yet it would be as revelation to our hearts that we would come to believe as you shine your light into the darkness of unbelief. 
Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for this. We expect that you would work in us and preserve us and cause us to hope all the more in your appearing. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. This morning, we're going to, like I said, we're just going to look at the first few verses. For the grace of God has appeared. All right, that is the the topic sentence of this paragraph. And really, it never stops talking about that reality, the fact that the grace of God has appeared. And so what I want to do is I want to spend a few moments reflecting upon the grace of God. Now, when I think of grace, I think that really probably many today would very quickly think of grace as the love of God, right? God's love of his people, But we forget that God's love is first and foremost a divine love. Listen to what I mean by that. I mean, God's love is first and foremost for himself. God loves God. And he's right to do so. God himself being the most glorious, the most infinite and excellent being that there is, is right to enjoy eternal fellowship with himself. And they would love that fellowship with himself. In fact, it's the great hope of salvation, not simply that we would be redeemed from sin, as we saw in our question and answer this morning. Not only that we would be granted eternal life, but that we can ourselves come to enjoy fellowship with God, that which is of greatest good. God loves God. So yes, it is right to say that grace is love, and yet God's love is first and foremost for himself. What does this have to do with us? Well, the scriptures are very clear that God has made known his love to his creation, for God so loved the world, right? And that's something that is outside of him. That's not God loving himself in that sentence. That's God loving the world. It's God loving creation, In fact, it just so happens that creation itself is an act of love. It is a a, a giving of God to make something other than to simply love himself. But this leads us to a dilemma. You see, God made all things perfect, right? But we know when it says, when God so loved the world, it's not talking about God loving the perfection of his creation. That's what God's talking about when he says he made it good, right? Over and over again in Genesis 1, it was good. But by the time we get to John 3.16, it's not good anymore, is it? The pinnacle of his creation, humanity, turned away from his glory and chose sin and rebellion in the place of the creator. Again, that was in our questions and answers. This morning wasn't. It was with our first Parents, Adam and Eve, and with all since, we have turned away and rebelled against the Creator. And the question is, can God, whose love is divine and perfect and full and lacking in nothing, can God love a fallen creation? Such an important question. I mean, that has to do with us. It has to do with the legitimacy of John 3.16, that most precious of scripture verses. If we mean love as God loves himself, the answer is no. 
God does not love fallen creation in the same way that he loves himself. God loves himself for his own infinite value, glory, and worth. Do you hear that? God loves himself for his own infinite glory and worth. So God's love for us must be something different. Romans 3.23 is quite clear that We are not only merely creatures, but we are sinners and rebels against a creator. And so we have fallen short of his glory. To love a a, a fallen glory would be a foolish thing for God, wouldn't it? How can we say then that God has ever loved us? How can we speak of grace as love? We're not like God. God is infinite in glory and worth. We are not inherently lovable in and of our own person. And as rebels against God, we actually discover in the scriptures we are objects of wrath. Don't want to pass over that point. That's not often followed up when we're talking about God's love, right? We're talking about God's grace that we forget to talk about the fact that As rebels against our God and as sinners, we are actually called in the scriptures objects of his wrath. So while it's right to think of grace as love, it can't simply be a simple love. It can't be the simplicity of the perfect love that is between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It must be that God has looked at us in some peculiar way that's unique to the way that he has loved his redeemed. And this is where grace and mercy meet. Grace and mercy. These these works that work in tandem. God has shown the glory of his grace to us because he is merciful toward us. This is where a man named Thomas Manton has been tremendously helpful to me. He has 11 sermons on just these few verses, and I've been reading them, and like each sermon is, honest to goodness, probably the content of seven or eight of my sermons, all right? He taught extensively on Titus 2, and he says that the grace of God, the grace of God is his internal motive to show love to us. His internal motive, God is gracious, his nature itself is free and abundant. Tim Keller is right to call God the prodigal God in his dispensing of grace. But it's the mercy of God that is his external motive. His external motive for love that he has looked upon us in our lostness. He's seen us in our rebellion and he says they're broken and they are helpless. And his his grace, his free, giving, prodigal, abundant nature is met with his mercy that looks at us in our lost and helpless state. And he is gracious to us with all that he is. And with all that he sees, he's merciful to us. Let me summarize it this way. When you hear the word grace, I want you to think love. I do want you, I want you, when you hear grace, there's no greater love than grace. The scriptures are clear from a number of angles and fronts, right? No, no greater love has a man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend, right? 
And Christ has laid down his life for his enemies. That's grace. And that's love. We are right to, when we hear the word grace, to think the word love. But not only love. Not only a simple love. God loves himself, but he has no grace for himself. You know that. He has no need of grace. And yet God loves himself. There is a giving in grace that finds its perfect complement in mercy. And so we are saved and loved by grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are the unique nature of God's love for us. Now, the grace of God is the whole subject matter of our passage in January. It's the, the topic few words in our paragraph. And so let us appreciate what we hear when we hear the grace of God. It's love, the very love of God that Ephesians says is lavished on us. It's, it's grace, it's free, and it's abundant gift. It's undeserved, it's unearned, and yet it's freely given. It's mercy because it's toward us, right? God's love is mercy because we're truly and utterly lost without it. There are a few words in the Bible that are worthy of more time, more thought than the word grace. I hope that there are scribbles appearing in your Bible as we reflect upon grace. I hope that there are references being circled and notes being taken and that our minds are being filled with reflection upon grace because there's few words that are more deserving of that time. I'm, I'm tempted to say that we would plumb the depths of grace during the course of January. But that'd be foolish talk. We're not going to plumb the depths of grace. We're going to scratch the surface. But I'm convinced that all of eternity is going to be spent plumbing the depths of grace. And we'll never get to the bottom of that fathomless sea. The greatness of our grace. We, we, we will seek to know and understand for all of eternity. And we will personally experience the bounty of his grace. So there is a job for us here, a leaning in to know and to understand and to learn together. But there is also a call to, by faith, experience and take hold of his grace that worship would start to rise up in the middle, in the hearts of a people who have come to know something about our God. In the beginning of our study of the grace of God, we, we are surely right to say that the grace of God is the unique and merciful love of God toward us. But we must also see that the grace of God's love toward us is in Jesus Christ. It's not just love in the abstract. It's love by means of a person. Jesus Christ. Look at the passage with me. For the grace of God has appeared. What in the world is that talking about? Well, what is very clear is that we can't talk about grace without speaking about Jesus, who is God's grace to us, being made known to us. God can have a gracious disposition toward us, but the way that God chose to exercise his gracious merciful disposition toward us is to give the Son, Jesus Christ, who appeared to us. We just got done with five weeks of celebration of his appearing, right? 
his, his incarnation. But it's more than that. If you look further in the passage, I invite you, and all over Titus, it's more than just his appearing as a child in a manger. It's more than even the perfect life that he lived. It's the giving of that life on a cross and a, a resurrection and a, a glorious reign on his throne today and the promise of his appearance again. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about his appearing. The grace of God has appeared in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul in Galatians 2.20 speaks of Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. So when it talks about the grace of God, it's talking about the Jesus who has appeared to love us and give himself for us. Jesus is the gift of God to the undeserving. He's grace. And Jesus is the mercy of God to sinners. Now, I want to go back to something I said a few moments ago. I think it's really the key question that I, I know I had of this few words, the grace of God has appeared. I want to go back to the question, can God love a fallen creation? Has God loved a fallen creation? And the answer is the grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That The answer was mercy. But mercy to sinners, apart from some price being paid, some penalty, some retribution, is actually injustice. And friends, I think that this is a mistake that we make so very often in Christianity today that causes us to miss the reality, the depth of grace, so that it becomes something wishy-washy. Something that, that isn't as deep as it really is. That mercy apart from some price being paid, some penalty, some retribution, is an injustice. Is it right or good to leave a murderer unpunished? Well, I decided to be merciful today. Try that out on the one who has lost someone. Is it right or good to leave a theft unaccounted for? We're just talking in human terms. What about the theft of the very glory and kingship of God himself when we place ourselves on that throne and reject his glory for a lesser one? And that would be injustice. I don't care how much you plead mercy. It's an injustice. This is why when we speak of grace, we have to, and the scriptures always do, speak of Jesus. Jesus is mercy's vindication. I'll say it again. Mercy towards sinners is a cosmic injustice. To celebrate mercy alone, off alone as a, as a disposition of a judge, is a miscarriage of justice, unless God has moved in such a way to right the rights, the wrongs. This is precisely what Jesus has done in the gospel. He has worked with mercy. It's the grace and mercy of God that has moved him to save. But it's the work of the Christ that has worked salvation itself. I love grace. I love mercy. But I can't come to understand it and its depth and its substance. And I love Christ himself. And see that he is the performer, the worker, the, the very incarnation of grace and mercy itself. 
It's a sacrifice of Jesus that he paid the true and full penalty of sin on a cross and that he obtained the right of forgiveness and dispenses it freely. Perhaps you've heard before that grace is unmerited favor. It's a great definition. It's quite beautiful. It's so. It is unmerited favor insofar as it pertains to us. We do not merit, we do not earn grace. No one who is the object of God's grace has earned salvation, which is freely given. But as Joel taught us last week in Isaiah 55, the free gift of grace is not free. Listen, the free gift of grace isn't free. Isaiah 55, 1, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Sounds free to me. But the fact is the wine and the milk are sitting there on the table. It wasn't created out of thin air. It was purchased by another so that we may come and dine at no cost to ourselves. When we say that the free gift of grace is not free, what we mean it was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Grace was merited. Grace was worked. Grace was purchased by Jesus Christ. Do you see that that gives grace a substantial value? Do you see that it gives mercy a justice and a worth that it was purchased by the blood of Christ? It's not just a kind disposition. It is a merited right that has been purchased by God the Son and freely then given to all who would receive it with faith. God has truly loved us. It's true. But we are insufficient if that's where we end that sentence. We can only truly understand what it means to say God has loved us if we would say God has loved us in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. Bernard of Clairvaux once wrote of the grace of God in his work, Of Christ, he wrote this I have a double right. By the grace of my Father, by the disposition of God to freely give and to work in mercy, I have a double right. By the grace of my Father and by the merit of Christ's passion, hereby I take hold of God with both hands, by grace and merit, not my own but Christ's. So that it is, it is right to say before the Lord God himself, and it ought to come out sounding more like praise than arrogance. Lord God, I have a right to grace. It was purchased by the Savior sufficiently and abundantly, and he gave it to me. Friends, that, that's not arrogance. That's standing on a firm foundation of praise for a great and gracious God. I'm going to take a moment to reflect on merit. Jesus as the merit of grace. It's essential in all of our thoughts about grace that we remember the work of Jesus. When we consider the grace of God, the reality that it is unmerited apart from Works. Romans 11.6, the, the Bible repeatedly brings up this idea. 
If it was by grace, if salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. When we consider the grace of God, we must understand the work of Jesus who made grace ours by right. We did not work for grace. We received it. Christ worked for grace. Grace is by definition a gift. It's undeserved. It's unearned. To claim any right to grace in and of ourselves is to become an enemy of grace. This is a note that's sounded over and over again by the apostles. Again, Ephesians 2.8, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So you could even boast, I've been saved by grace. Yeah, a grace that was purchased for me and freely given. And yet the gift of grace, it did have a purchase price. It was paid by another so that it might be properly called grace when it falls on undeserving souls. Now, what does this mean for us? What does it mean to, to reflect on grace, to say things that by, by and large aren't new to anyone in the room? What does it mean for us? What it means is the price of grace has been paid. There are at least three ways that many, even within the church, even present here today, slander grace, misunderstand, and then reject grace. The first way, some might say, you know, you know you aren't perfect, but you look at your righteous deeds and you think at least some must mean something to God. I mean, God must consider a couple of the things that I've done when it comes to his settling of accounts. And so while you know that ultimately you don't deserve grace, you go on performing as though you can merit at least some sort of favor from God. I'm not saying I earned heaven or anything. I've done a couple pretty good things. And you go on like that. And every time we go on in that self-righteousness, it's a slander of grace. There's another way to consider it. You look at your sin, and while you know it's wrong, surely it's not so bad that it deserves eternal punishment or anything. I'm not saying I've really done anything right, but the things that I've done wrong, are they really that bad? And so, while you know you've got sin in your life, you go on pretending as though your sin really isn't wrong. That is to slander grace, for you are not in need of it. But there's a third person, and it's really the person I want to speak to primarily this morning. You know God is holy. You know He is just to punish sin. You know it. You've read the scriptures. You spent time in Isaiah. You were with us during the course of the Advent sermon series. You've been listening this morning. You know Romans 3.23, what it is to fall short of the glory of God. And you would love to know his grace. You would love to receive his mercy. But you are so crushed by the reality of your sin that there's no way that a holy God could love a sinner like you. Listen, you know a lot about grace. It sounds like you do. You know his utter holiness. You've heard word of his compassionate mercy. 
But you must not have heard of the sufficiency of the work of Christ. You lack a knowledge of the merit of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to actually cover what he did in his work on the cross and vindicated in his resurrection actually accomplishes purification, actually atones, actually cleanses. For the one who calls out to him in faith, every sin was on his shoulders. Every debt was credited to him. Every wrong which cries out for justice, which cries out for retribution, was accounted for in the suffering of his flesh so that you can bear it No more. There is an actual merit in the work of Christ. This is his work. It's his, not yours. And it's done. It's grace and it's mercy. And the abundance of his grace overflows in the sacrifice of his work. It's for this reason that Ephesians 2.10 says that we are what? His workmanship. The redeemed are the redeemed only because he's worked it. Do you believe that he's worked quite well? Do you believe that he knows what he's doing? Like he's the master at redemption. When it comes to craftsmanship in saving lost and hopeless souls, master craftsman. Do you believe in the abundant of the merit of his grace. So brothers and sisters, you who labor over your own sin, don't labor any longer. Your sin is atoned for. Your salvation is merited by the right of Christ. As Thomas Manton reminds us, to say otherwise is to suggest an emperor's revenue could not discharge a beggar's debt. So is our sin before the sufficiency of the grace obtained for us by the work of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? What does it mean when we read the grace of God appeared? What does it mean when we consider the subject of the whole of our January? What it means is Jesus has appeared. Jesus has appeared in his person and in the work of his gospel. He's the one who, according to verse 14 in our passage This morning gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You notice what comes last, anything that we might do. It's after he has purchased for us the rights of the redeemed. Here's where we want to go. I realize that Pretty much nothing that has been shared this morning, nothing that we read in the scriptures is likely very new to you. In fact, I wish, I hope that it's not new to you. I wish that all were so steeped in what has been shared this morning that anyone could come right on up here and begin to speak. But my question for you is not, did you learn something this morning? My question for you is, have you believed something? This morning, I didn't ask if you had believed at a summer camp back in the day. I didn't ask if you believed something that your parents told you or something that you heard from a roommate in college. I asked if when you hear of the grace of God that has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, have you believed today? 
Is there a renewed appreciation for the love of God toward you? Is there a deepening humility that God's love is motivated by grace and is the work of his mercy? Is there any growing confidence in the sufficiency of Jesus to forgive your sin? Do you have confidence in that this morning? This is what I mean. When you hear of the love of God being made known by his grace, what effect does that have on your heart and soul? I would like to suggest as we close just a few responses. Even as I I pray that right now, God is already working these responses in your heart by his spirit. Four responses. The first is this, that you'd pray. That that this, this business of faith is one that takes place in an interaction between an undeserving sinner and his gracious God. That you would pray. That you would actually speak with your God. And I mean that actually even now. Like right now. Begin to speak silent words with your God, even as I continue to speak with you. And I would encourage you to write notes to think and to close your eyes, perhaps, to speak silently to our God right now, that you would also confess that if grace has truly come, if grace has actually appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you need no longer be ashamed. Sinner. That falls on every single ear and heart in a different way. But the call is the same for every single one. To confess, to be ashamed no more. Let the renewed awareness of our own sinfulness bring us rather from shame into awe at the sufficiency of the cleansing work of Christ. Third, you would believe. Grace has appeared. The scriptures bear witness to the fact that sin has been atoned for, for the redeemed. Jesus has brought salvation, as we will consider next week. All that awaits grace's merciful work in your life is faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The call this morning, right now, as you are before your God, is to believe. And finally, beautifully, abundantly, we're going to practice it in a moment. Give thanks. The first fruit of grace is praise. The first fruit of the faith in the grace of God is that we would give thanks. It's God's own explicit purpose in salvation. Listen to Ephesians 1.6. It speaks of our salvation in Christ as to the praise of his glorious grace. What is God's purpose in salvation? It's to the praise of his glorious grace. That's where it's going to. I often remind you that the sermon is only a part of the flow of the whole of the service. It's why I just keep calling us not to arrive late and not to leave early. It's only a part of a larger flow this morning. Because it takes the whole of a celebration service to tell the story. And so let's continue the story. It won't cease with a closing prayer. It won't cease with a prayer that you are, I hope, in in this moment. We'll pray. We'll continue to explore grace in the Lord's Supper. 
And we'll continue our prayer with praise, with generosity in the giving of our offering, with song and leaving this place as a people in mission. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do your work in us to apply grace, that the reality of the salvation that you have purchased, that is yours by right to dispense according to your good pleasure, that you would meet that grace with a call to hearts this morning. You would give the gift of faith right now, and that there would be new belief among your people this morning. You would call the people to yourself that Mark was right to say that there is not one in your family but Christ who was forsaken. And we see him vindicated. We see that his sacrifice worked, that it abolished sin and death. That we, who are united to that grace by faith, will celebrate with you forever. Thank you, Lord. We, we thank you for your grace and we pray that you would work in us and that you would transform us to be workers, that our workmanship would produce good works that don't bear witness to our own merit, but rather to our great praise and enjoyment of you and your way. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.